You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, there was a game that uh, I used to play with my sister when I was younger, and, and, and many of you probably have, have done this same thing. It's a simple game where you, you take just one word and you say it, Again and again and again and again and again until the word loses all meaning. Maybe some of you have seen, I think it's, it's not Tommy Boy. Is it Black Sheep with Chris Farley? I don't recommend this from a pastoral perspective, okay? You guys need to understand that almost every cross-reference I'm going to use is descriptive and certainly not prescriptive. Right? There's this thing that happens in our brains when we say something over and over and over and over and over again to where it just begins to sound like noise. Uh, there's actually a scientific word to this phenomenon, which I love. We uh, talked through this with our kids yesterday. It's semantic satiation. You want to pull out like a quarter word at the dinner party next time. You use that. See, what happens is every time you say a word, your, your neurons, they fire in your brain. And when they fire, they, they distinguished that sound that you just heard from all the other sounds that are going on around you. It gives meaning. But when that neuron fires again and again and again, it fires with less and less intensity every time it happens until that sound just kind of fades into all the other noises in your life. This isn't just something that happens when young children play a game or when you read the same word over and over again. It's something that tends to happen to us as Christ followers as well. It happens with incredibly important doctrines and truths staples of who we are and what Jesus has done for us. We become inoculated, if it is, because we've heard it so many times that certain things begin to lose their impact. A word like righteousness, which is a word we're going to lean into today for many of us, has suffered the effects of semantic satiation. We vaguely know it's important, and yet it's just one of those words that we hear so often and as Christians say so often that the distinctiveness, the importance, the depth of it begins to lose its meaning. Think about it for just a second. How in your own mind would you define the word righteousness? Perhaps you think about concepts like being good, being obedient, keeping away from sin. But the word righteousness, the Greek word that Paul uses here in chapter 3 several times, at its core means to be approved of. It's not being good. It's being enough. It's being accepted. It's being worthy. It's 
belonging. Tim Keller offers this definition of the word righteousness. He says it's a validating performance record. It's something that you take with you in any given circumstance in order to say to someone, I'm worthy, I belong, please accept me. When you go into a job interview, you take with you a resume. And that resume communicates, or at least hopefully communicates to your potential employer, I'm worthy of this position, I belong here, please accept me. If you were to apply for graduate school, you would submit to them your academic transcripts, saying to them, I'm worthy of admission. I belong here. Please accept me. Each one of us is constantly walking around hoping that we have a validating performance record. That in our vertical relationship with the Lord and in our horizontal relationships with each other and ourselves, we can say at any given moment, I'm worthy, I belong, please accept me. Paul, in chapter 3, continues his letter to the Galatians, these new believers, this new church, and today he turns to the topic of righteousness, and he's going to describe for us three key truths surrounding this doctrine. One, our need for righteousness. Second, where our righteousness comes from, and third, where our righteousness ought to lead us. One, our need for righteousness. Two, where our righteousness comes from. And three, where our righteousness leads us. Now, I I want you to to know this. Chapter three and into chapter four is is what many of the commentators call the, the doctrinal crux of the letter to the churches in Galatia. Paul has kind of introduced himself, he's introduced his intent, he's even described his own story in order to relate many of the things that the churches were struggling against or maybe had already given themselves over to. And now, in chapters 3 and 4, he's going to lean in hard to justifying, if it were, the doctrines that he is writing to them about. Now, here's the reason I say this. Sometimes it's easy as we read passages like this, especially from a mind as brilliant as Paul, to hope that the best thing that we can do is just kind of understand what he's talking about. But you have to remember that that Paul is writing this letter out of love. The only reason he would lean in heavily to doctrine is because he loves them. And so, as we read even these dense words from Paul, the Lord 
through the Apostle Paul, is leaning in out of love, desiring to speak to us. Not just so that we can know about him, but so that we can better know him. Paul begins this way in verse 1, O foolish Galatians, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles amongst you, does he do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even though chapter 3 is the beginning of a doctrinal section, in some ways it's also the emotional crescendo of the letter for Paul. You, you can, you can kind of hear him. He's been getting worked up since the beginning of the letter. If you've been here over the last several weeks and now he gets here and it almost as if Paul's starting to lose it. Or at the very least, this is the crest of the wave of emotion and pleading that he has with these churches. You can hear it in his voice and the words that he uses. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? This is the same apostle that so often calls his readers beloved, children, but here they are foolish and bewitched. That word bewitched literally means to, to be put underneath of a spell, to be bound, captivated by something evil. The word foolish means that, that they're not operating in their mental faculties. They've stopped thinking. Their actions are no longer being driven by reason, but by something else. Now, now pause for, for two seconds. What might you expect an apostle like Paul to critique or condemn or fight against with words like, you have been put under a spell. You've been bound. You're not thinking. You're, you're being driven in your actions by something else. Maybe lust, maybe sensuality, maybe greed, maybe violence or passions of the flesh. But Paul reserves these words, foolish Galatians, bewitched, not for licentiousness, but legalism. Not because they are being driven in toward sin, but because they're being driven in a different way away from the Lord. He's not upset that they're not straining their lives towards the Lord. That they're not pursuing holiness. 
He's upset because they were saved by grace and now they have turned their hopes to something else. As he says in verse 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So what are the Galatians doing? What are they doing that's making Paul so angry? And Pastor Adam and Pastor Brett over the last several weeks have, have laid this out for us. After having received salvation, or as Paul equates here, having received the, the gift of new life and a new heart of the Spirit of Christ, by grace, through faith, they began to trust in, to work towards, to submit to the law. Grown men had willingly given themselves over to circumcision. They had submitted to dietary laws and restrictions, to rigorous observances of festivals and rituals. Paul is so incredulous that they would do this because this was no easy thing that he says in verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain? Not to be overly graphic, but you can almost imagine Paul walking up to a Gentile adult male. He's maybe walking with a little bit of a limp and saying to him, What did you do? And it may be a little bit that we can stand back and, and with, as C.S. Lewis says, a little bit of chronological snobbery, shake our heads at the Galatians. What fools they were to think that they would need to submit to the Jewish laws. Certainly you and I would never do that. But the problem with that is we don't stop to ask the question, why were they doing that? You know, when we study Scripture, sometimes we tend to ask a lot of what questions. What is going on? What is being explained? What do I need to know? But oftentimes we skip over the why questions. And so much of Scripture is about the why. Why do we do the things that we do? Why does the world around us look like it does? And it's worth asking the question, why are the Galatians submitting themselves to these stringent, strict, difficult laws after coming to faith through the grace of Jesus. Well, here's what we know about the churches in Galatia. One, they were primarily Gentile. And Paul says this as he's writing to Gentiles. 
they're a church that was primarily Gentile. Yes, they had been saved by grace through faith, but now as other Jewish quote-unquote believers enter into their presence and fellowship, perhaps they begin to see themselves as second-class citizens. When they looked at the standing that they had in the presence of God that was only by grace alone, Perhaps it felt insufficient. Perhaps it felt like their righteousness, their ability to be accepted, worthy, to belong, that theirs wasn't as much as others. And so they worked. They worked to get better, to be better, to be more worthy. In their mind, by observing the law. I think I'm trying to gently lead you there, but let me make sure that we all get there. You may have eaten bacon every day of your life. You may have never blown the shafar or celebrated a Jewish festival. And I would argue, just for myself, that I am every bit as captivated in trying to find my own righteousness as these foolish Galatians. That every time we walk out of our house and think, if I could just be, then I would be okay. If my spouse just saw me as this type of person, then I would be okay. If I could just stop doing these things, then I would be worthy. Then I would belong. Then I could be accepted. use words like maturity when it comes to Christianity. And oftentimes what we mean when we say it is, if I could just be like this Christian, then I would belong. Then the Father would accept me. Then I could stop feeling shame and guilt in my life. We're searching for righteousness just like the Galatians. And listen, here's the game we play, and I think the game that the Galatians played too. They probably, as they received this letter, said to Paul, no, 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 Paul, 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 we're not legalists. We know that we were saved by grace through faith. You know, maybe they would have joined us and said, listen, when I stand before Jesus one day and, and, and you know, St. Peter asked me, that's not theologically accurate, I'm just using it, okay? Uh, why, why, why should you enter into these pearly gates? Again, not 
at all biblically accurate. You know, maybe they would stand here and go, I, well, I, I would say Jesus. But perhaps when they got down on their knees to pray, they thought to themselves, why will the Father answer me? Perhaps when they entered into the water of baptisms, they thought, I still have so much, so much that I need to become. Perhaps as they faced communion and they thought back about the week that had just been, they looked down at the bread and the cup and thought, I'm not worthy of this. It's all righteousness. And so they did what they could. And what they had in front of them was the law. And they said, I know. If I start to observe these things, if I start to obey these things, then I will be perfected, completed. Then I'll be enough. But Paul tells us, Righteousness by the law, righteousness by works, righteousness by us is not only less than righteousness by faith, it doesn't exist at all. Paul goes on in verses 6 through 9 and says this, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham is the father, the patriarch, the, the human founder of the Israelite people. He, amongst all other humans, the Jews would have argued, was the first and foremost of the children of God. He, more than anyone, had righteousness. He was the most deserving, most belonged to be able to access the presence of God. And Paul tells them, do you know where Abraham got his righteousness? It was because he believed God. His righteousness came because God graciously approached him graciously promised to bless him. And Abraham saw God and believed. This family of God that the Gentiles were being adopted into, 
This family was always the plan, and it was always the plan that all that would belong to the family would belong by grace through faith. Do you see what Paul says? Paul says that God came to Abraham and preached the gospel. Did you hear that? Verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, God preached the gospel to Abraham. What was the gospel? Like we would typically think of like a like a first Corinthians gospel that that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came and lived the perfect life, and that as a sinless substitute, gave himself over to the scourge of the cross, died in our place, rose again, and therefore has purchased for us new life. And, and that that is the, the fullness of the gospel, but what does Abraham get from God. What is his gospel? In you, all the nations will be blessed. How do those two things match up? How do those gospels match up? They match up by who's doing the acting. God is gracious. Receive. That is the gospel that was preached to Abraham. And it was the gospel that we received in the fullness through Christ Jesus. Do we trust in ourselves? Do we lean on ourselves? Do we trust in our flesh, as Paul says, or do we trust in the Lord? Like Abraham, do we trust in his promises, his work, his salvation? Abraham may have never known the name of Jesus, but he trusted in the same grace as us. That though he was unworthy, God had graciously come for him. That God would miraculously deliver and bless him because he promised to, and the promises of God never fail. It's the same gospel that we celebrate, clarified in Jesus. That you and I trust in Christ. That though we were unworthy, God in human flesh came for us. That He delivered and blesses us by His sacrifice because He promised He would and His promises never fail. That's what Paul is up against. He tells the Galatians and he tells us, it's always been grace. It's always been about Him coming for us. The law was never going to do it. Our righteousness comes by grace through faith trusting in the Lord and Paul goes on to describe where that life of righteousness leads 
that in fact, that life of not measuring up yourself, that life of abandoning all your own hope is actually a life of blessing, joy, and flourishing. Verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Paul boils down his declaration of righteousness to one choice. We have this choice to either live a life from righteousness or live a life for righteousness. One choice to either live a life from righteousness or live a life for righteousness. Let me explain. Paul explains to the Galatians that to live a life depending on and trusting in ourselves, our own flesh, and the law is to live a life under the curse. Now let me be clear. The law of God is perfect. But why was the law of God initially given? To teach a people who had lived life so ingrained in slavery how to be beloved sons and daughters. The Lord had already came to them. He had already adopted them. He had already freed them. He had already brought them into His presence. And then He said to them, here is a law that will teach, instruct, help you to learn how to be mine. The law was never meant to lead Israel to do anything other than trust the Lord more. As if as they received the law, they could admit to themselves and to God, I don't know how to be yours. Thank you, Lord. Lead me. I trust your words, your instructions, your goodness, not mine. Paul tells us no one, no one is justified by that law. In fact, to cling to that law as your righteousness is to live a life under the curse. In this broken world, as people formed in sin, 
We can never earn a standing before a holy God. We can never make a tower high enough to reach Him. From the moment that we were cast out of the garden, we were always dependent on Him coming for us. We were never going to make it back up to Him. Paul declares with utter certainty that to live a life under the law, to live a life believing that you can conjure up your own righteousness, is to live a life cursed. But conversely, he goes on to say, the righteous, they shall live by faith. Now this is a phrase, again, if you've been in the church before, you've heard. Okay? The righteous shall live by faith. Paul is quoting from Habakkuk. But pause for a second and think about how odd of a phrase that is. The righteous shall live by faith. What we actually, at least me, what I typically hear when someone quotes that is something that sounds like this. If I live by faith, I'll be righteous. Anybody else hear that? The righteous shall live by faith. That's right. I'm going to live by faith and I'm going to be righteous. No, that's not what I said. Do you see how ingrained legalism is in our bodies? Even the messages of the gospel were like, yeah, I'm going to do that, man. Like, lovingly, I'm going to tell this story because I do this, like, so I, somebody at some point in time, must have been the Lord, thought it was an idea that uh, he would allow me to counsel people. And, like, when I counsel guys, typically, I, us guys, we struggle with uh, learning how to rest. We struggle with being loved and feeling compassion. And do you know what every guy tells me when we talk about learning how to rest? I'm going to work to rest. Like, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just annihilate that task you've just given me to rest I'm like no, no. <laughs> you know when I'm like listen you got to be compassionate with yourself and they're like yeah dang it why am I such an idiot I'm never compassionate with myself and I'm like right like it is ingrained in us but that's not what Paul says he doesn't say if you'll just become righteous by faith No, he says, you're righteous. Live by faith. Done. So go and do. Christ has, you now are. There's this movie that came out in in 1981 uh, called Chariots of Fire. Anybody seen it? Okay, good. Excellent. One and a half people. You guys are either not knowing that this can be a two-way interaction or we just need to watch some more movies. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Ding, 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 ding. That's a part of the movie if you haven't seen it. That's not just what I do towards the end of my sermons. Like that's how I announce I'm, rap- I'm landing the plane. 
Eric Little, or Liddell, who I've always called that, uh, and Harold Abrams are the two main characters in the movie. Uh, they're, they're both British track and field superstars in the 1920s. Both of them working for an Olympic gold in 1924. Now, the long of the story is Eric Little doesn't run in the gold medal race, though he is favored because it takes place on a Sunday. And he believes that the Lord has called him just to rest on Sunday. At one point in time, he and Harold Abram are both interviewed about why they run. Harold Abram is asked why he runs, and he responds this way. Because when that gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. Why do you work so hard? Why do you train so much? Why do you give everything? Because when that gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. Later, Eric Little is asked a very similar question. Why do you run? And his response is, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. One is working for righteousness. One is living from righteousness. The curse, it was a result of us turning to ourselves. Adam and Eve in the garden believed that they knew what was best. That they were enough to leave, to live a life of flourishing, blessing, contentment. And the curse that is placed upon themselves and the world follows from that train of thought. The Lord turns them over in many ways to what they were asking for. See if you are enough on your own. See if you are enough without me. See if you can run and rule and lead this world into flourishing without me. And the answer is a resounding no. They had gone from being beloved children, covered by the Lord, led, provided by, for, or for, by the Lord, to a place where it was on them, constantly on them. And Paul says, don't you know that Christ came into the curse He became the curse so that you and I would be freed from it. Freed from struggling and striving. Freed from a world apart from the Lord. Freed from having to work your way back into His presence which we've never been able to do. So now, 
underneath of the covering of Christ, in the presence of God, where we are declared perfect and holy and loved, why would we ever step back out of that into the curse again? Why would you ever go back into, I need to become, I need to be, if I can just? Because that's the world of the curse that we have been lifted out of by the blood of Christ. Listen, I'll, I'll close here. One, I think my heart's cry is that you and I would just be honest that we are far more like the Galatians than we would ever care to admit. And it makes sense. The world around us screams, you are not enough, but you can become enough. And so eventually we start to scream to ourselves, You are not enough, but you can become enough. But the Lord says to us, Christ says to us, I am enough and I am yours and you are mine. And so he beckons, come and rest. Pray with me.